0: Verse 26, when he came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing that he really was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. Now, most likely he arrived in Jerusalem three years later after his conversion. Um, this is clearly laid out in Galatians 1.18.2. So Arabia seems, when you put all this together, it seems that he converted on the way to Damascus. He went up to Damascus. He was there for about three or four days, and Ananias came and healed him, and he went off to Arabia for about three years. He might have kind of come into Damascus and like preached and then gone back off to Arabia. Maybe he spent the last year in Damascus, but it is three years later before he comes to Jerusalem, and the apostles meet him. The apostles meet him for the first time. So how much of that three years is in the wilderness in Arabia and how much it was in Damascus, we don't know. But it was definitely wilderness, Arabia, then Damascus, then Jerusalem, three years total. And what's amazing is the apostles who are considered the greatest men of faith, right? In these early days, these are the people who walked with Jesus. They got it. The Holy Spirit a ding-dong. And the Holy Spirit comes upon him. And minutes later, he's no longer a ding-dong. He's like preaching powerful message of God. He's connecting dots. He's confident and brave and bold. He's walking right up to the powers that be, and he's doing healings and people are respecting them there they're going to them for decisions and they only they can approve and lay on hands to validate the, the the holy spirit's gone to the samaritans and for three years they've been hearing stories about this saul who's converted and doing miracles and laying on hands and exercising demons and preaching the gospel and proclaiming it and he comes down and they're immediately afraid and they won't meet him because they're still human because though even though they're apostles and they're amazing men of god with great authority it does not mean that everything they do is always right and always perfect. And this is very important. I'm trying very hard. We are not to demean the early church because they were doing amazing things. Nor are we are to put them on pedestals. And that's the same thing with the apostles. Even Paul, I don't know all the information, but when he gets angry at John Mark and kicks him out and says, I'll never trust him again, I don't think that was the right thing. I don't really think that that's the gospel. Barnabas gives John Mark a second chance. Why didn't it Paul who preached grace all the time? And there is a sense that he's kind of a stubborn I'm right and I'm not going to And that I'm right and I'm not going to budge is what makes him a powerful preacher against the people who are trying to kill him and attack him and that he will not stop at any cost to preach the gospel. But with every strength there's a weakness. It can also get in the way of intimate relationships. These guys and these women are not pedestals. Or they're, not, they're not to be put on pedestals. They're humans. They're humans, and they had their times. And, and there's, there's ways that they screwed up. And even the apostles right now are showing, why is it that Ananias can just immediately believe and go? And people in Damascus, it's only granted Ananias had a vision, but the people in Damascus immediately begin to, begin to trust him. Barnabas immediately vouches for Saul. But yet the apostles, after three years, still are hiding. They're hiding. That shows you how scary Saul really was. They're willing to walk right into the temple, right into the high priest who killed Jesus, and preach and risk getting arrested. But then Saul comes along and they run. And they hide. That shows how scary he was. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. He told them how Saul on his journey had seen the Lord and that Lord had spoken to him and how in Damascus he had preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. Barnabas knew all this. So Saul stayed with them and moved about freely in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. He talked and debated with the Grecian Jews, but they tried to kill him. And when the brothers learned of this, they took him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus now Tarsus is right north of the Mediterranean really close to the western coast you have a map in your notes or on my website if you want to look at that Barnabas is an amazing man I wish we had more about him Barnabas just looked right into Saul he just seems to be a man that just really can see into people and and know who they are Mm -hmm. right off the bat and he's he looks at Mark and he says, I'll give you another chance. He looks at Saul and he says, I will vouch for you when nobody else will. He's going to go off to Cyprus later and when everybody's like, no, no, no. We didn't mean those Greeks. And he's going to go, nope, it's legit. And, he's gonna go, and when every time he speaks, people listen. And people say, well, if Barnabas is saying it, it must be true. And there's something about his ability to look truly into the minds and the hearts of people and his ability to just speak and, and, and have authority. And not a power um, ruling authoritative sense, just a, we know he knows what he's talking about. And he doesn't seem to be, obviously he was a great teacher because he's going to be part of the missionary journeys. He's going to preach the gospel. But his authority seems to be on what God is doing in people's lives what God is doing in people's lives. The apostles seem to have the authority to preach the word of God and the authority to know who Jesus is. Um, Paul seems to have that same authority, but Barnabas seems to just know what's going on in people's lives. And when he says, yep, this is what's really going on with them, everybody's like, okay, Barnabas says it. It must be true. And there's there's a different kind of respect for Barnabas and his word there. And he's willing to give Saul a chance when nobody else will. And not nobody, 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 but the Jerusalem people. Now, maybe they're more afraid because they already have experienced persecution in chapter 7 and on. um, Where people in Damascus probably haven't experienced that much because the Sanhedrin doesn't have much of a power up there. And so maybe that's why they're more afraid um, than everybody else. But I almost still think that Paul should have said, oh yeah, you know what, Barnabas vouched for me when nobody else would in Jerusalem, And now he's vouching for John Mark on his second missionary trip. I should take his lead. I should take his lead. But God will still use it because now we will have two missionary journeys in two completely different directions because God can use anything. So they send him off to Tarsus. The irony here is Saul picks up exactly where Stephen left off. The last time we saw Saul is that he was standing in approval of Stephen, who was the only other person who said he could go toe-to-toe, head-to-head with all the authoritative people and debate them, and they could not own him in the debates. Not saying the apostles don't like that, but that's not said of them. He was said to be full of the Spirit of God. He was sold to be in Jerusalem and stand up against them. He is the beginning of the persecution. And the minute he spoke, they turned on him, the Jews, and began to try to kill him. And now Saul is right back where he was when Stephen was killed. And he said, the only other person said, to go toe-to-toe, head-to-head with all the Jews and debating them and that they could not refute them, that he was full of the Spirit, and that they immediately began to try to kill him and attack him, and he had to flee. How ironic that God is like, know the guy that you stood in approval of killing and it was the beginning of all the killing of the, the Christians and that you begin to spearhead? Now you are literally in the spot that he was and you're picking up where he left off and now they're going to turn on you and they're going to drive you out of the city and begin to attack you and kill you. And this isn't God getting revenge or payback. This is just God doing his thing and picking up where you know, you, you, you put a little bump in the gospel being spread here, but nothing can stop the word of God. And I will pick, use you to pick up or you created the bump. You built the speed bump, you're going to go in with a jackhammer and jackhammer it down again. And we're going to start and keep going where we left. That's the way I see it. Most likely, he was not driven away by force. It seems to be that later in um, Galatians one twenty one, he says that he was called by God to go to Tarsus. So yes, they're trying to kill him. Yes, the heat is turning up, but it's not like, oh my gosh, I'm afraid. They're trying to kill me, and I'm like literally running away, and they're about ready to kill me. Um, I'm not saying he wasn't afraid, but God came to him and said, go to Tarsus. Tarsus is his hometown. So now he's going back to his hometown, and he says that he received a vision from God to go there and to move on with the gospel. Then the church, verse 31, throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria, enjoyed a time of peace, and it was strengthened and encouraged by the Holy Spirit. It grew in numbers, and living in the, living, living in the fear of Yahweh, and the awe and the mystery of Yahweh. And so God gives the church a reprieve. It's got to be a kick in the pants for the Jewish elite when their greatest weapon has just converted to Christianity. And there probably was a little bit of a, what do we do now? And so in the human nature of seeing this and being dumbfounded, in the political discombobulation and being defeated by this, and then just the supernatural, sovereign, divine power of God, Persecution ceases in Jerusalem for a while. And then the, the church in Jerusalem is able to, ah, bring a aside right now. It's not going to stop forever. It's not going to, but, but God gives you these moments. There's, there's calms in the storm that he does bring you. Okay, there, there are really respected man of God in the church. In this region from our school, um, Al Aiton, passed away a few years ago. Always used to say, if you're not in a storm now, one is coming. The good thing is that God doesn't make storms last forever. Or the intensity is not always in your face all the time. Um, So he gives them a reprieve, and it stops. And as a result, the church begins to grow. But here's what's interesting. The church was growing before the persecution started. When the persecution kicked up in chapters 7 and 8, the church continued to grow even more. And now that the persecution has stopped and delayed, the church is growing even more. And I think the point here is that God is saying, nothing stops the word of God. Mm-hmm. Nothing stops the word of God. Peace, persecution, an incredible weapon against me, Saul, political powers, whatever it is, nothing can. Even when, like, and this is post, if this isn't legit, it'll die out. But if it's from God, you can't stop it. And yeah, now... His disciple is a powerhouse for Christianity. Yeah, we wonder what a lot of people are thinking right now. A lot of people on many different levels. And so this is, and now really think about this. Saul is the Gestapo. Saul is the head of the KGB. Saul is the man who literally had no problem grabbing men and women and children and arresting them and killing them, torturing them for information, and truly believed that he was righteous, absolutely justified, and incredibly godly man for doing this. Not like deep down inside I know this is all about power and oppressing people because they're inferior. And I don't really, I just want more and more power, and I'm willing to hurt these people, and I'm willing to use them as a scapegoat to gain more power. But I really, truly believe that God is smiling upon me as I murder women and children in the name of Yahweh. And I really believe that this is the right thing to do. That's somewhat psychotic. I'm not saying he was. But if you would look on him on the outside, you'd be like, that is jacked up. And yet, 180, within one conversation, gives it all up. And within a couple of years, becomes on fire and goes the complete opposite direction. This is a powerful conversion. This is a powerful conversion. This is what I tell my students all the time. The Bible is full of stories of horribly jacked up, flawed people being used by God. Abraham is passing his wife off as a sister to use her as a shield on multiple occasions just so that he won't get killed. Jacob is literally going after women, a woman just because she looks good and then gets married to another person. That's not enough. And then literally uses his own wife, Leah, as a human shield when his brother is coming to kill him and literally just disowns his other sons because they're not their favorite, and yet God uses them. Gideon literally is skinning his own Israelite people alive because they would not give him bread and water. Yet he was willing to let the enemy of the Midianites stay alive if they had made a deal with him. Samson is literally a narcissistic, chauvinistic, womanizer man who is a sex addict who's sleeping with Philistine prostitutes, who literally mistreats his wife and calls her a cow at her own wedding and then abandons her after he kills a bunch of people of her people, disappears for three months, comes back and comes back and says, I want to have sex with my wife. Give her back to me. And when he says, you abandoned her, I gave her to somebody else, he says, now I have the right to kill people. And then he goes up and kills people, sleeps with another Philistine prostitute, sleeps with another woman, and then asks God to give him revenge for his eyes at the end of the story. David literally rapes a woman because in a one-night stand and then murders her husband and the 50, at least 50 soldiers in his command just to cover it up. He cuts the head off of Goliath and carries it around as a trophy for 40 years. As he sits with multiple women and has multiple wives which is a violation of Deuteronomy chapter 17, 14 through 20. And they can go on and on and on. And yet, Hebrews says, by faith, Gideon. By faith, Samson. By faith, David. Hebrews 11 is not the hall of faith. It's not God saying, look at these amazing people of faith. The whole book of Hebrews is about how Christ is superior and greater to the priesthood, to angels, to Moses, to the law, to the tabernacle. Everything. And then Hebrews 11 says... Your object of faith is not the tabernacle, it's not the priesthood, it's not it's Jesus and then the point is, by faith and God under the Old Testament and the old Mosaic law, they were able to do these things when they put their faith in the object of the Old Testament of God, they were able to do this. How much more could you, with Christ as the object of your faith do this? It's not that they were amazing people of faith. It was that, that Christ and God are amazing objects of faith. And when you put it in the right object, you can do an amazing thing. And I don't mean object as an objectification. I mean, just grammatically speaking. And this is what I tell my students every day. If this is the people that God is using, if God comes to the time period of the judges, where the Israelites are said to be worse than the Canaanites, the end of judges ends with the Israelites doing the same thing to their own people that Songomorh did to the angels, wanted to do to the angels. That they're involved in bestiality and pedophilia. The Israelites are. That they're worshiping pagan gods, they're sacrificing their sons to the gods in order to have their houses blessed. They're sacrificing their daughters to the gods to win victory in battle. Okay? They're doing all these horrible, despicable things that warrant them being wiped out. And Samuel single-handedly brings a revival to that generation. If God can do this with Saul, the whole point of the Bible is not look at these amazing people of faith. The whole point of the Bible is look at what God can do with anybody. Look at what God can do with these people who had these sex addictions and these alcohol addictions and these, these power trips and this oppression, exploitation, things that are going in their life. Their narcissistic tendencies, and yet even when they don't even completely turn around to God, a lot literally passes off his daughters and says, "Here, you can rape them and violate them instead of these two guests in my home." And God looks on and says, "That's enough righteousness that you're at least willing to protect the angels that I'm going to extract you and save you." And we're like, "What? That's not righteousness." But in God's book, faith like a mustard seed. And the Bible is literally full of stories of God taking the scum of the earth, the weak of the earth, the the flawed of the earth, the the corrupt of the earth, the the most sinful of the earth, the, the, the least confident of the earth. And then even when they don't fully commit themselves, he does powerful things with them. And then when they fully commit themselves, he gets all the glory. And if God can do that with them and with Saul, then there is nothing that you can do that will keep him from doing it to you. And yes... You can say, forget you, I don't want to follow you. But if you have faith and you're trying to pursue him, it doesn't matter what sin you've committed. It doesn't matter what addiction you're struggling with. It doesn't matter what doubts you have. It doesn't matter how low your self-esteem is. It doesn't matter how suicidal you are, how depressed you are, how distracted you are. If you're at least saying, but I'm going to try to pursue him. I, I may not be moving as quickly towards him as other people are, But remember, it's not always like it's whether you're facing him or not. You can be two feet away from God and facing the opposite direction. And you can be a mile away from God and facing towards him. And God goes to the tax collector in the temple and says, he's more righteous than the Pharisee. Because he's facing the right direction. And as the author of Amazing Grace says, no, I'm not what I ought to be, but I'm not what I used to be. And I remember this guy when I was younger. Um, We worked construction together. Um, His name was Mike, and um, he was stereotypical Hells Angels, narcissistic. Um, um, Him and his wife had sleeping swinger parties all the time, and um, we had to paint this church. And he refused to get in the baptismal paint the wall because he was afraid he was going to die under the wrath of God. Um, and, And then he converted to Christianity. And then and, and he was a custer and a drinker and all this kind of stuff. And, and then a few years later, a lot of that started going away and God began to produce fruit, but there was he was still rough around the edges. And, and people would be like, what, you're a Christian? And his answer was always like, yeah, but you should have seen me a couple of years ago. and And I think this is the power of the Bible. It's not how amazing these people are. It's how amazing God is that he walks into the most broken, the most sinful, the most depressed, the most low self-esteem lives, and he just transforms them. And if he can do that for them, he can do them for you, he can do them for your grandchildren, he can do them for your kids, he can do them for your neighbors, he can do it for the Democrats or the Republicans, (laughs) (laughs) he can do it for anybody. And that's the point of what we're seeing here. And for the rest of Acts, we need to say yes. Saul, Paul, is going to do amazing things for God. And yes, there are times when you're in doubt. You should look at him as an example. But that's not really the way you should be looking at him. Ultimately, you should be seeing, this is what God can do. And the example we look at is not, look how amazing Paul is. I will emulate him. I don't think Paul meant that. I think Paul meant, look at what God can do even in me. That's what you should emulate, the selling out completely to him, because then you can do it in you. If you don't know where else to see God, then look at me, not as in I'm the perfect image of God, but I'm a great example of what God can do in somebody and how they can work in him. And that's what your (coughs) model is. That's your template. That's what we should see him for the rest of Acts, is all Paul is is someone who simply says yes. And when he says yes, God radically changes the world and people's lives. And remember, that's all the power you have. You have no power except what you say yes or no to. All right? The minute I say yes to that job, that job now has power over me. I have to show up when they want me to. I have to dress the way they want me to. I have to do the duties or the responsibilities they want me to. And I have the power to say no. No the minute I say no, then unemployment has power over me. And it tells me what I have to do in order to get a job. It tells me it rules my anxiety, all that kind of stuff. Yes, I have the power to say yes to my wife. But the minute I say yes to my wife, she has power over me. So say, now I'm beholden to somebody. We have to do life together. I can't just leave whenever I want. And if I do, then divorce and all that stuff has power over me, right? Like all we have is the power to say yes and no. And the minute you say yes to something, it has power over. And the minute you say no, something else immediately comes in and has power of you. And that's all Paul is. He's just someone who's consistently saying, yes, God, yes, God, yes, God, not me, but you. This flesh is weak, but the spirit is willing. May the kingdom of God come on earth as it is in heaven. I will be done on earth as it is heaven. And that's the way that we need to see this Bible. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But for God so loved the world, He gave His only begotten Son that none shall perish, but have eternal life. And this is how He does it. All you need to say is yes. And He will transform the world with you.